Hey, this is Sam from Brain Tools, and this is the shortcut version of our Brain Tools podcast, where you get just the Brain Tools, all four of them, uh, nothing else. It's short, practical, and sweet, and I hope you like it. Okay, and now for the Brain Tools section, which is actually the Bias Tools section today, as we talk about biases, and just a little bit of context we should cover before getting into it. Uh, the, the key idea behind this section is that there's no such thing as an effective solution for your biases. They are hardwired into your brain and into your decision-making processes. And a lot of them are actually wired in from birth. You know, we are effectively born with so many of these biases. They're not learned or conditioned responses. And there are hundreds of them. I mean, according to Wikipedia, what, 169 biases. So what we wanted to say is it's more about awareness, awareness that you have these biases, aware that biases may be impacting your decisions uh, or causing you to make the wrong decision uh, in the wrong time and creating a bit of a language to label and identify these biases. To give you some context, Daniel Kahneman, who Kieran talked about before, the Our forefather boy. of cognitive biases, <laughs> once got up on a stage and said, I've been studying cognitive biases my entire life for over 25 years and yet I still fall prone to them all the time. So they happen, we have them, all we can do is be more aware. And that's the, the context and the introduction to this section, our bias tool section. Led by your mic drop. <laughs> this is boop. I really, really enjoy it. I totally agree. And so I think there's a frame for that. We're not going to treat today as his brain tool one, brain tool two, brain tool three, as we normally do. We're more going to frame it as his biasy one. Here's what it's about. And here's ways that you can look to try and be aware of it and mitigate it um, in more systemic and individual ways as well. So Sammy, I'm going to start with biasy number one, if I can. Let's go. Bias number one. I really like saying this. Bias number one, the halo effect. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Ooh, angel. I know, right? Emoji. The whole Shaggy. <laughs> so biasy number one is a halo effect, and I'm sure people are like being like, hey, halo, why? So basically to start with it, what, what it is is basically a cognitive bias that claims that positive impressions that we have of people, of brands, of products in one area positively influence how we feel in another area. And it was basically coined by a guy called, guy called Edward Thorndike in 1920. So 100 years ago is when this was first recognized. And I think to get really practical, give you an example. The classic of this, Sam, is the following. When you see a good-looking person in a photograph and then you think that because they're a good-looking person, that they're a good person. They've got a great personality. Mm -hmm. And it's that attribution from the physical appearance that gets like a moral implication and judgment that actually leads you to make, uh, make these assertions, if that makes sense so far. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. And I think if anyone's listening to this now, you think about the amount of times you saw someone who was really attractive and you thought they were going to be this awesome human being. And then it turns out maybe they weren't. Maybe they were rude to you, maybe nasty. And you, you had that little moment of cognitive disfluency where you thought, oh God, why was I wrong? Absolutely. It always happens. And I think another really good example, um, and I was think, and I was looking into the research around this, but there has been so many studies from a food perspective. So you go to the supermarket, right? Oh, and when yeah. you go to the supermarket or you go to the shop and you look at food products that are labeled organic um, you know, versus conventional, the organic products received higher ratings and consumers are willing to pay more for them. And it just it shows you from a consumer psychology perspective how people can be manipulated to spend more money than is actually necessary. So it's not just from a, a person perspective, which is, hey, here's this good-looking person that's probably brilliant and really successful, but, hey, here's a product that, given a word, given an affect, leads to you thinking it's higher um, sort of in its status, so to speak, which I found absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I'm scary too. 
stop yeah. buying that or those organic almonds. Exactly right. Cut back I- on them. <laughs> organic food. No, no. Do what you will. Your uh, way to go about what you want to do. Now, in terms of why it's a problem, and I think this is really clear, is if we are, are really prone to it, it's clearly going to hinder our ability to think critically about other people and their traits, right? First and foremost. But more importantly, it's going to make us really susceptible to marketing as it always does. Like think about the people that are in your ads. Like if you're on Instagram and you're mm-hmm. on your Twitter, I'm not saying there's not good, not good looking people that are on that, but a lot of the time there's, you know, really clearly good looking people that are being put on it and you associate with them. It's the future end state that you'll be this person, you'll look like this, everything like that. And I think it's really important to note that this is systemic. It's around and it's the way that we are, I suppose, positioned. The whole idea of sex sells as an example. Yeah, it catches your attention. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. So I suppose as I, as I round this first one up, just to think about ways to counteract it, I thought about this from a way that people can obviously leverage it, but also in terms of how organizations can go about it. So I've got three. I think the first one that we think about here is we've got to leverage it through your first impressions, right? Like you want, if you make a good first impression, then obviously there's going to be a filter there that, hey, this person was a great person in my first meeting. It's obviously going to lead to then confirmation bias, which we'll speak about later, but confirming those original things. So obviously have them be really mindful about your first impression that you give to people. I think the second part though is conducting interviews right? And how you can fall prey to hiring, quote unquote, the good looking person or whatever it might be. Always have two people in an interview. Um, having done a bit of startup consulting before and not in a big way, but there's always normally just because they're strapped for resources, you have one person there being like, hey, this is the person we're going to hire. You need to have a second person there to have a set of eyes on there as well, but also having objective criteria to assess those people on. So you're not at prey or at mercy to a lot of these biases. And I think my last one that I put forward to you is products always actually compare products side by side with some sort of objective criteria to remove the bias when purchasing. Purchasing, I think that's key, right? Otherwise, you're just going to be so susceptible to, hey, here's a great brand based on what I've been advertised to, therefore, I'm going to get it. And that's the whole point of obviously consuming that. And that's biasy number one, the halo effect. Biasy number one. And so it's all about that attribution of elevated qualities as a result of attractiveness effectively. Um, mostly attractiveness, yeah. You have absolutely hit the nail on the head. Love Have it. you heard of uh, blind blind interviews where they wow. won't show people's faces? So they'll, they'll, they'll hire people and the first round of interviews to counteract halo bias is they'll actually have an interview where it's the person is genderless um, and, and faceless and they do a task and they answer some questions that way. And the idea is that that then counteracts that halo effect. It's so interesting. And like it also I'm just thinking about it as, I, as we wrap this one up. When you see someone's resume, Right. If you see that, like, yeah. quote unquote, went to a good school or anything, you're already biased to these people. You know, there was the heuristic when you were, I think, like, when you talk about law firms and all that sort of stuff, being like, hey, split it into two piles. Here are the universities we want, here are the universities we don't want, and all that stuff yeah. that comes with it. So it's, it's an interesting one that is hard to get out of people's minds. But as you rightly pointed out, that idea of being blind or at least blind to certain things when you're interviewing becomes really important. Who would have thought being blind uh, actually counteracts some of your bias? I love it. Being blind to certain things. Senses. Get rid of them. Information. (laughs) Who needs them? Um, (laughs) Speaking about processing information, that brings us to bias number two, my first bias, which is negativity bias. Mm. And this is one I think is particularly relevant and pertinent right now because a lot of us would be experiencing this uh, in large doses. And what it is effectively is negativity bias is the tendency to notice um, what's wrong far more than what's right. To, to pay more attention to negative information. And this is an adaptive strategy that is derived from survival processing. Obviously, if we're better able to detect threats on our environment and more sensitive to them, we're more likely to survive. 
You know, if we find out that eating a berry uh, makes us really, really sick, we're, we're going to pay more attention to that than if we ate a berry and felt fine because one of those leads to a really bad outcome. And so optimizing our selfish genes for survival, which Dawkins shout out, um, is, is where this negativity bias comes from. I, I, you got me right now, and I know you did this for me, but you shout out Dorky Dork. <laughs> Just so I, I, I'm so happy. You've, you've got to read that. The book's so good. Like, you've got to give it The, the book's great. He's an interesting human being. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's he really his, his, yeah, his teardown of people. In, in, that's a topic for another day. But so this bias, this negativity bias is quite problematic right now. And I'll give you an example. In my own life, um, I could say right now I'm I'm st- stuck in Australia. I can't study my masters in Spain. I can't travel. I can't do anything. And this is my negativity bias coming in place because it is me focusing on all the negative information and the things going in my life that are you know perceived to be going wrong. When in reality, I could be thinking about the fact that now that I'm in Australia and can't travel, I've got all this time to work on projects. I'm reconnecting with friends, with loved ones, but that information is playing less on my mind because of this bias towards the negative information that's threatening us. And so that's kind of a bit of a problem. So what is the solution to this and how do you kind of future-proof yourself against negative bias? Because we all experience it to, to some mm-hmm. extent. It's to really understand that negativity bias is this tunnel vision towards what's wrong around you or what might be threatening your survival if we were to look at it from more of an evolutionary psychology and evolutionary neuroscience perspective. Um, And that can be things with your partner, your job, your life, the world. The solution is to learn to tunnel that vision back towards positive information and shift your attention towards the good in your life. How do we do this? You're going to kick me in the face because this is so obvious. Gratitude practice. Yeah. Gratitude practice is the way you overcome a negativity bias. And we've talked about this almost ad nauseum in, in previous episodes and in especially all the episodes we did around uh, around well-being and emotional regulation. Go check those out. We talk about that a lot there. But effectively, what you're doing when you practice gratitude on a daily basis is cognitive restructuring. You're rewiring your brain to counteract your negativity bias by teaching it to pay more attention to positive stimuli, positive information. I, I really like that though, right? Because as you said, negativity, negativity bias, you, you people listening right now, and for me included, you know the people in your life that somehow are more, um, they, they lean towards the negative, right? And it's very hard oh, to yeah. get them out of it, but it also negatively impacts you. So you need to actually consciously mm-hmm. like, hey, let's look at a broad frame. Because this is basically a framing problem, right? If you're framed to look at all the negative oh, stuff, and it, then you're in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. But as you're rightly putting, if you actually practice the gratitude, you're clearly going to be more aware of the things that are in your life that are, you can be grateful for, which I really like. Absolutely. It's all about that uh, awareness and attention funneling. Um, and gratitude is just a, a practice for you to develop a better habit of learning how to focus that attention, those goggles. Yeah, putting on the, the goggles on. Yeah, <laughs> put the goggles on. And just being really conscious that, you know, negativity bias is an innate part of our neural processing and there's, there's neural circuitry and networks that are optimized for this. So building it up through uh, a gratitude practice is a great way to help overcome that bias in, in your life and the impact it has. So how could you do this? Really, really simple. There's a whole different slew there's a whole slew of ways you could you could write in a gratitude journal you can sit and practice uh each morning personally i spend five minutes each morning uh sitting down and and reflecting on the things i'm really thankful for that's my gratitude practice there are a million different ways to do it the key is to practice it daily uh because this is how you're going to rewire your brain to counteract your innate negative bias so that's bias number two negativity bias and the bias tool which is a gratitude practice to counteract it 
boom, boom, shake the room. I love that. There I think on that on that implementation, just as a uh, to add it, one of my friends recently has been doing this, which is actually messaging his parents with one thing he's grateful for every single day. And what he's found, oh. he reports it back to me, which is like, it's awesome sending it to them because they obviously, uh, it's great, but hearing back from them a thing they're grateful for has been really big for his personal well-being as well. So just a bit of a shout out to that because I think it's a great way of implementing it if you don't want to sit there with your diary and say, dear diary, I'm grateful for X. That is so brilliant. And we're going to add that to the brain tool slides. Uh, so make sure you grab those from our Substack or our socials later this week. Yeah. Great I love addition. it. Oh, we're done well. So two biases down. We're going to get to biasy number three. And Sam, biasy number three is hindsight bias. I am mm. so excited to get into this one because I'm reading a book at the moment, Black Swan by uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Yeah, he loves it. Uh, man, that man loves himself, that's for sure. <laughs> but he does raise oh, yeah. a really good point on the Black Swan. But to tell you what it is, hindsight bias, and we always talk about hindsight being no 2020. It is our tendency to look back at what it was an unpredictable event, something that we didn't even conceive of, and actually to think it was easily predictable. It's also called the, oh, knew it all along effect. You know when people say, oh, I knew that was going to happen. Oh, I knew this was going to be. No, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you, you had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I knew Tesla was going to go up 10,000%. I should have bought shares. I knew Afterpay was going through the roof. <laughs> oh, my word. Things, especially with, people with, with betting, stocks, everything, oh, any yeah. big event, people like because they assess it, obviously, with that information there. So to give you a really uh, actual tangible example in my life that happened recently, I'm not going to name these people, and I hope they don't listen to the podcast, but um, I want to put forward a hypothetical for you, if I may. Sam, you ready? Please. Okay. Let's call them Jack and Jill, shall we? <laughs> Jack and Jill, they are soulmates, the whole shebang. And one day after work, uh, Jack receives a message and basically from Jill and says, oh, we need to talk. Suddenly he gets worried is everything all right? Does she still love him? He didn't notice a bit of tension over the past few weeks, but it turns out that she's not happy with the relationship and she needs a break. Now, he then tells himself, I knew it. And then he basically goes to his friends and he said, he looks back at the relationship that he had. He saw so many signs, canceled plans, awkwardness, being ignored by a friend and so forth. He had known it all along. And so the bad news was no longer a surprise. Now, the conclusion here, mate, is that an unforeseen breakup becomes foreseeable to this person after it takes place. And he overestimated his ability, obviously, to do it. My question for you is, have you ever had this before with a friend? Uh, I have, not personally, and just just like you. I won't name names, but I'm, I know multiple friends who, after they've broken up um, with their partners, have turned around and said, oh, I knew we were going to break up the entire time. I'm like, well, I don't remember you saying that to me <laughs> until after you broke up. <laughs> and again, we're not having a crack at anything because I, I, I know uh, I've totally been uh, oh. at the mercy of this as well. Everyone has because the emotion is obviously so key within that. But there are even more global examples. We just said it before, the global financial crisis, 2008. Everyone was an expert after this, but not before. <laughs> Everyone was like, oh, yeah, saw it all along. Saw this. I don't even know what happened, but, you know, obviously things uh, went all the way through. Outcome of political elections and so on. And so I think it's just really important to note that this problem, that it has a very clear negative influence on decision making. Because good decisions in reality come from realistically considering the tree of possible outcomes that could happen and the likelihood of them happening. And so if you assume that what happened in the past is going to happen in the future, then you're extrapolating, not interpolating. And so it can lead to an overconfidence in the decisions that we end up making. And so as I give you something hopefully practical to overcome it, um, it's creating a decision journal is the reality, which is like where every time you actually make a decision, you list your decision. 
you and you actually assess what was I actually thinking at the time that you made it. And it's always really interesting mm. when you look back at the decisions that you made and you actually say, hey, here's what I was thinking at that time. Because it's really easy to assess in the present moment how you feel about it in the past. In the same way, like we impose our moral judgments on, say, hey, how people acted during atrocities, say Hitler's regime and so on, I would have done something different. And not having a crack at anyone, but you probably wouldn't have, to be honest with you, right? Like you wouldn't have done anything yeah. different. You would have gone along with it for because it was a sign of the times. So creating a decision journal can help. Listing your decision, what were you thinking about it? What was the actual outcome? And then what could have happened? And what that helps you appreciate is to actually understand that the outcome that happened, you had no idea it was going to do so, but you're actually more appreciative prepared in the future to assess it in that way. Again, that awareness factor. And that's our bias number three, hindsight bias. Bias number three, like it a lot. I like it a lot. It's And with all these biases, I mean, that's a really powerful tool, but it's that awareness piece. It's that awareness piece, which is super important. Totally agree with. And Sammy, you round us out, my man. Round us out with bias number four um, and conveniently placed at number four. Oh, so we didn't prepare now we, we might have, because now this bias is going to come into effect when you listen to this podcast. How about that? Uh, bias number four, which is recency bias, or as psychologists like to call it, what have you done for me lately? Oh, what have you done for me lately? And okay. It's also called the recency effect. Effect mm. Effectively, what it means is we remember what's recent much more easily than in the past, and so it plays a much bigger role in our decision-making. So we are biased by recent events relative to the past. Uh, and I'll give you an example to, to make this a little bit clearer is say you've got a friend and, you know, the last time you went to hang out, they ghosted you or they didn't answer their phone. And then it's a week later and you're thinking to yourself, oh, maybe I should go hang out with Jason again. Oh, you know what? Actually, last time he ghosted me, I'm not going to hang out with Jason today because I, I don't know if he's that good of a friend. When really the last 200 times you hung out with Jason, he never goes to you. And actually something happened last week that, that you kind of talked about, but it's still playing in your mind. And this is a perfect example of recency bias because that last event that happened last week, the most recent event is the one you take into account with the greatest weight for your decision. Mm. I love it. And it's a, it's a big one. It actually comes up a lot in performance reviews in work settings where oh. people will review someone's performance over a 12-month period. And if they don't have all that performance documented, managers will reflect mostly on what's happened recently because that's what they can remember the last three months. So if you have a bad Q4, but had an amazing Q1, two, and three, managers are going to pay more weight subconsciously to Q4 because it's what's going to be top of mind. And so you can see how that'll have a massive flow and effect to the decisions and, and mostly how you treat other people. I, I really, really like this. Is just what's coming to my head, you know. Again, I know we all talk about sport a lot, but it's like who's the who's the best in the mo at the moment. It's always of based oh, yeah. on the recent uh, recent Recent. events, not like the body of work Absolutely. and the consistency yeah. across that time. And the same place with the workplace. Like you could have a person who's been amazing at work for three years, um, but then you don't notice the fact they've been amazing for like area under the curve. But you take the peak of the person recently because it's recent. That's it. Exactly. We will pay way more attention to what's recent. Recent. Um, so what is the solution to this situation? The, this one is an interesting brain tool because I'm asking you to not use your brain, but use technology or use documentation because records overcome recency bias. So proof from your past is what you need to help overcome that bias of relying on your memory. Because that is the limitation in this bias. It's the limitation is we can only store so much in our brain, in our working memory, short-term memory, but also in our longer-term memory and, and kind of the mid-term memory in our hippocampus. 
So one way to circumvent this bias is doing a bit of a recency audit. Uh, and what I mean by that is start from the end of time when you are evaluating this decision. So go backwards. So go, okay, well, what actually happened three months ago uh, in this employee's performance? What happened six months ago in this employee's performance? What happened nine months, 12 months ago? Work your way back through time and go back through and have a look at the proof. So if we were to take this on a more personal example with your friend, Jason, who goes to you last week, go, okay, Jason goes to me last week, but what about last year? Oh, actually, I don't remember Jason ghosting me at all last year. I'm just going to have a look through my messages. Actually, no, I ghosted him a couple of times. And suddenly you're challenging your recency bias by providing new information that runs counter to it and giving it a much broader uh, array of information. So you're overcoming that mental shortcut, that cognitive shortcut um, by providing new information and obviously relying on technology in this example. So to kind of wrap that up into a neat little bow for this bias, when it comes to recency bias, the best way to overcome it or mitigate it is to travel back in time and use records or proof from the past. We all have our phones these days. We all have WhatsApp. You can go back and have a look at your past conversations. And this is a great way to overcome that bias when dealing with people and interacting with them. I love that so much. By the way, just as a, as a Jason, Sucks. Yeah. Jason, <laughs> what a bad guy. Sorry, I just, okay. just, throwing, just throwing Jason under the bus. I don't know him at all. I don't know a single Jason. So uh, I that's why I chose that. I just thought Freddie versus Jason, and that was a long time ago, to be honest with you. I don't know a single Jason. But um, your, the whole point of recency bias, though, mate, and I think you've explained it so, so, so well, is that I'm just thinking about how people end podcasts, as an example, how people end movies, how people end presentations. It's always end with a bang and leave them with a lasting impression, but it's so true. You're going to remember the end and not really necessarily remember the first, you know, if it's a 50-minute presentation, you remember the five-minute end, five-minute start, but not not the center. But not the center. Exactly right. I mean, there's a there's another effect we'll talk about in future episodes called the peak end effect coming mm-hmm. from uh, Daniel Kahneman, which says the same thing. People remember the peak emotional experience, but they also remember the end the best. Um, and that's that recency bias coming into play. I love it. Well, let's go back up to the top. Let's uh, let's recap these biases, shall we? Starting with uh, bias number one, the halo effect. Always remember that basically the halo effect is that we will have a positive impression of people and that will impact how we actually view other traits that we see with them. The example being a good-looking person that we think being a really, really good person. Just be really mindful of this, and especially in interview settings and first impressions and in products. Always be mindful to have another person with you whenever making these decisions so that you don't fall prey to the siloed effect of, hey, this is a good person, therefore this is a good thing about them. And that is bias number one, the halo effect. Strong. I love it. Bias number two is negativity bias Remember, we are biased to notice things, negative information, because they could be perceived as threat. So we're hyper-vigilant, hyper-attentive to those, um, which can totally impact us uh, downstream in terms of our mental health uh, and our mood. The way you overcome and mitigate this is by practicing gratitude, because this is rewiring your brain to pay more attention to positive events and positive experiences and stimuli. And that's bias number two. Love it. Bias number three, hindsight bias. Basically, the idea that we, it's our tendency to look back at unpredictable events and think it was easily predictable, aka, I knew it all along. You didn't. Now, the key thing to remember about this one is, you know, keeping a decision journal, having a look at the decision that you make in the moment, actually listing it, what you've actually considered at the time and what you actually are doing about it with the actual outcome. And that way you have a log of all the decisions that you've made. So when you do make a new decision, you have that in mind, mm. hey, 
This might not be the actual outcome that will happen, but at least you're considering the possibilities and the probabilities of that. And that is biasy number three, hindsight bias. Yep. Get rid of that. I told you so. <laughs> oh, the worst. <laughs> oh, everyone loves it. So wrapping up, biasy number four, which is recency bias. What have you done for me lately? And that's that we pay much more attention um, to what has happened recently and weighed it much more heavily in our decision-making because it is top of mind and more easily recalled. How do you reduce this or mitigate that's its impact on your decision-making is by doing a recency audit and going back through time, having a look at past events beyond the last couple of months or last week. Uh, and you can do this by using technology or any records of any kind to help provide that counter evidence. And that's by C number four. I love it. So good. Really, really strong. Sam, 80-20, what do you got for me? My 80-20 is a bit of a cop-out, uh, but I, I don't mind that. <laughs> that's the ultimate hedge. Thanks for your hedge, mate. <laughs> bit of a hedge, okay? No, strong. My 80-20 my is great. It's, it's that you don't actually need to know all the names of the biases um, and how all of them impact you. Instead, the thing you need to know when it comes to biases is, is that you are biased and you're probably going to be biased most of the time. So to just stay aware and check how biased you are in every situation by asking yourself, how might, be, how might I be biased right now? What might be causing me some bias? You don't actually have to put a name on it, but by doing this, you, you force yourself to think about the ways you might be making these errors and decisions, uh, and then you can be more mindful about making those decisions. It's a long 80-20. Oh, it's, but it's such a good one. Because 95 five. System two, all about system two. Yeah. And that's uh, what leads to my uh, 80-20 or main takeaway for the week. Conscious thought leads to considered action. We talked about a lot about these heuristics and biases that come from system one, the fast processing. Just be mindful, leverage your system two, actually consciously asking yourself those questions. Like Sam said, how might I be biased about this? Is going to bring them up to your awareness, your conscious thought. So next time you do make a decision, you do consider the biases that you're bringing to play. And that's my 80-20. D-bias. D-bias. Bias off. I love it. New product from Brain Tools. Speaking <laughs> of Brain Tools, uh, if you like this episode, if you've liked any of the other episodes, and if you want to get uh, the Brain Tools and a, a really practical format, go to braintools.substack.com where we'll be posting them also on our socials. But you could also show us some love by just leaving a cheeky little iTunes review, uh, however many stars you feel. Anything helps uh, with the algorithm, and we really appreciate you listening. Taking, taking time to join us on this journey through the mind, through the brain, through the neurons, through the synapses in your head. That's it. For me, <laughs> that's for this that's so deep. I think about the universe, like one grain of sand is like the size of the world. <laughs> <laughs> getting poetic, getting poetic. So good. Yeah, just basically, if you're doing a review, just don't say you hate us because that's just, that's just mean. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't or do, that. do and make it funny so we can roast ourselves on social media. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Sam, that was a phenomenal episode. Thanks so much for your time, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. See you next week.